A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistle. Welcome to episode 214 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, as well as canon, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of our multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Hurleman. And with me, like a reprogrammed Imperial droid, drawing blaster fire to my location, the EU guru himself, the Count of our two Continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. I find your enthusiasm vague and unconvincing. Ooh, that, that was that was good. <laughs> like, like there must be something I can do for K2SO there. Ah, what's going on, Mark? Ah, uh, you know, it, it's 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 nice to put last year behind us, step forward into a new year with some new optimism, and hopefully cast off the shackles of the dark side that that 2016 kind of put me in man it was a real funky year for me I had a lot of personal tragedy and stuff so i'm looking forward to a, a new year a new beginning and a fresh start yeah it's been kind of a mess of the last year or so but at least now hopefully the new year will calm things down i think we've got uh well as of the time we're recording this we got about a week before a new administration comes in and all hell breaks loose politically again so for a, a social studies teacher we got about a week of peace left um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to this year. This is the year that my wife and I get to go to our first Star Wars celebration. Um, oh, yeah. It's the 40th anniversary of A New Hope. And we've got, uh, at this point, I'm hoping to have a book ready to go by, maybe not celebration, maybe we're looking at more like the 20th or the 20th, the 40th anniversary on the 25th of May of A New Hope or something. I kept being asked when or if I would write a book on all that Star Wars home video stuff. And I finally was like, you know what? Yes. Yes, I am. So I did that over the break. I just worked and worked and worked my butt off on that thing. So last night I did my second full edit pass through it, added some stuff. I've got about a five-point to-do list of stuff, and then I'm going to need to go through and take the pictures of the products to be able to put into the book, and then I need to make the giant checklist at the end that I promised to be able to let people kind of check off things as they're collecting them. So there's still quite a bit to do, but uh, depending on when they actually release the Rogue One home video releases this time, which I'm assuming will be around April because that's what it was for The Force Awakens, then hopefully I'll be able... Uh, to get that very quickly added into it and get it ready to go. I'm going to do the whole Amazon Create Space self-publishing thing because I've worked with previous publishers before, and it's been a good experience, but I'll tell you, getting money from the book after it's already out and is selling copies is pulling teeth, and I'd rather have something that's a much smoother, faster, more profitable process, even if it means that Amazon becomes the only way to get it since that's where a lot of people go anyway. So uh, lots of stuff to try to be optimistic about for 2017 as far as, uh, as far as the fandom stuff goes on my end, and I'm hoping everything goes as smoothly as uh, 2016 didn't. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds like uh, 2017 will be the year of the butler. I, I, I'm actually bummed that I'm not going to be able to be at Orlando with you. But at the same time, I got to do a celebration on my own and kind of, kind of test it out. So now this is your testing of the waters, and hopefully the one after this we'll both be able to be at together because that's that's something I'm looking forward to, man. Is actually getting to bump into you in the flesh, man. Heck yeah, heck yeah. We're also we're um, I put in a panel proposal i guess you'd call it so i'm hoping nice. we're going to be able to have a panel on the home video stuff this year so hopefully if if that goes well by the time we actually can possibly appear in the same place then i'll have a sense of sort of how that works and if there's something that we can put together that we can get approved then we could do that at the same time too that kind of we, we both have seen the ins and outs of our respective sides of the country for the convention and how certain parts of the process work so that we're more ready to go and, you know, loaded up for what we need info-wise um, before we try to pull off something a little bit more grandiose. Yeah, and I think I think you're going to be a no, no-brainer no on that. I mean, you're very informative. Plus, I think even casual fans have been interested in the changes that have come along the way. And even those that are more versed will be surprised at some of the changes that have come down the way. I mean, that mm-hmm. when you started this, that was always the thing about me. You know, I, I wanted to know that. Like, you know, the little changes, like the laser color going back and forth, the, the drop dialogue 3PO had here or there. And the, why didn't he touch that escape pod's blue top little weird things like that so I, i'm definitely thinking that they'll they'll jump right on your uh, proposal man i hope so i think it'll be a it'll be a fun experience if we can finally pull that pull that off and pull that together but we'll see we'll see i'm uh i'm slowly kind of looking ahead trying to get things wrapped up with that i actually just had somebody uh paul l like he doesn't want me to use his last name but had a guy who essentially donated three 16mm Star Wars behind-the-scenes films that would have been from, like, a library or a military base, not home video. Uh, So those arrived the other day through FedEx, so I'm kind of gleefully opening those up, holding them up to the light, like, oh, my God, I know that scene from Blu-ray, kind of thing. (laughs) So, yeah, I guess once we get it figured out as far as hopefully getting it approved, the next step is, you know, what can we cover in the time that we have? But I think all that, that whole process is going to be something worthwhile even if just as a dry run to be able to do something like that uh, later on, whenever we're able to focus more on sort of the wheelhouse of this show uh, with the beyond the film stuff. Although I guess this time we're not really beyond the films per se. We're leading into more stuff beyond the films. Um, But this time is a film, which is kind of the opposite. Yeah. I remember being beyond that film and watching it from the far back seat. Oh, it was pretty cool. Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we ponder Gareth Edwards' Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's arrogance. Oh, wait! Actually, check out episode 213, our year in review, films, television, and the um, other stuff for our spoiler-free look at Rogue One. Now, consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentience of All Ages, because here we go. On another adventure, Beyond the Films. I just see people who want these spoiler-free stuff first, like scrambling, diving toward the keyboard, like, no, hit, pause! Abort! Click. Abort! 
go. <laughs> that was my warning. Up, oh, too deep already. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, there's a lot of aspects that we could cover with Rogue One or Rogue One, a Star Wars story, and we're going to kind of bounce around all over the place. Uh, Both Mark and I have read some of the novelization, have not had time to get through the entire thing yet, so we'll probably save a lot of our thoughts on the way that that affects the film, the Stover effect and whatnot, which is in play here, this time with Alexander Freed. I'll probably be addressing that more when we talk about Catalyst coming up in another episode because they're both novel topics and whatnot. But from time to time, that will inform some of the stuff that we're talking about here, as would things like, you know, the visual guide or interviews done after the fact, and all the things that help to add to our understanding of both the film and the production of the film. But this episode is predominantly, you know, what did we see in the theaters? And I will say, I guess, starting out before we even touch the story, that I found myself pretty impressed with a 3D presentation on this one. I went to see it in regular... Uh, XD, as they call it, for Cinemark, which is just basically a regular film, but just the screen is bigger. It's not quite as big as IMAX, but it's bigger than a traditional screen. And then I also saw it on opening night in 3D. And I gotta say that there were elements of it, like, say, the CGI Tarkin, for instance, or the recreated Tarkin. Um, Those types of things I was quite iffy about on whether or not it was as clear as I thought it was because I was watching it in 3D the first time. And then when seeing it in 2D, I was able to really get a good impression of the effect itself and how well done it was. But I think what stood out to me with this when I did see it in 3D is that this is a movie where the depth does sometimes tend to move towards you. Like, a lot of 3D films, they can make the depth look like it's coming, you know, towards your face. But then other 3D films kind of stay away from that and make it more like there's a depth going into the screen. Yeah. You know, almost like you're looking out a window or into a diorama. And that's how The Force Awakens was. Mm -hmm. Even on home video, you stick in the Blu-ray 3D disc and... You're watching it, and it's as if there's the, you know, like when in the woods battle, it's like the woods go on and on and on into your TV, and then the fighting is closer to the screen of your TV. But it's not like the fight is sticking out of the TV from your perspective. There's only maybe one or two instances where, like, a, like the finalizer, where it looks like that. Whereas it, Rogue One was a better mix of some stuff that seems like it protrudes out, some stuff going in. Um, So I think that either way that you would see this, whether you're seeing it in uh, 2D or 3D, uh, large screen or regular screen, I think this is going to be one that the experience is pretty positive both ways. I know there were some people, there's a lot, a lot of times people are kind of iffy on the 3D side of things and whether or not it enhances the viewing. And I think it did this time in a way that was a little bit more consistently what we think of as 3D film than The Force Awakens was. Yeah, I watched it 3D my first time and I came away, you know, going, I don't really, I don't really feel like there were any popping effects. And so then I saw it in the 2D and, and I felt like, yeah, it held up very well. When I went back and watched it again in 3D, when I took Jaina to watch it, my four-year-old, I did notice a lot of really cool scenes. Like, like there were scenes where, when Cassian Andor uh, brings up the rest of the Rogue One crew, when Baze is like, well, how many more do we need? When Cassian's talking, it'd focus on him and the rest of the group behind him would kind of fade, you know, focus out. And then it would go to them and he would focus out. And the way he kind of would pop out as he unfocused was kind of cool. Little things like that, the space battles and stuff were all the real popping scenes for me. I think that the one thing about this that I really came away with, unlike with The Force Awakens... I never once stopped smiling my first time through this one. I mean, The Force Awakens, there were moments where my my mouth dropped in p- 
pure, oh, no, please don't go there kind of thing. And so, you know, that was it was more of an emotional ride when I watched The Force Awakens, whereas Rogue One, my first time, it was more I was just experiencing it. I was kind of more shocked that for the first time ever there was a Star Wars film that I felt like catered to so many things that I wanted to see out of this film. Like, that really floored me. I'm not used to that. I mean, as an EU fan, we don't get catered to hardly ever. So I was like, holy cow, I, I got to see Chopper at Yavin? Like, that was something I begged for, you know? I was, I, I mean, so for me, like, the Easter eggs were, were one of the things that I was really getting a jump out of. Now, I want to say moving forward... Every Star Wars film should have a huge amount of Easter eggs because I didn't feel like they were really Easter eggs per se, more of the universe building that I have I have come to know and love the Star Wars expanded universe for doing, taking elements of different stories, different mediums and working them in this case, the majority of it being rebel stuff. Uh, but I mean, you know, we saw, we saw the ghost parked outside Yavin at two different times. Uh, when you first see the Rebel Alliance headquarters and there's that little word as it's dropping down saying, you know, Rebel Alliance headquarters or Rebel Alliance base, whatever, where the word alliance is, as it drops down, you'll see the, the ghost parked outside the base there. There's another scene where it's on the opposite side, on the left hand side where you see it. Uh, we hear General Sindula's name, uh, and Pablo has, uh, confirmed that it is not Cham. Uh, so that's kind of cool to know. Uh, you know, we see the ghost in battle about six to seven different times. We see Chopper himself when one of the uh, communications officer runs outside for the uh, to talk to the uh, interrogation or not the interrogation this the intelligence general that wants to off Galen Urso and have uh, Cassian do it. When he goes rushing out to him, you see Chopper rolling off on the left hand side, kind of out of screen outside the hangar bay of Yavin Four. Little things like that that just tickled the living death out of me. I I I get a kick out of those kind of connections even more so than the ones that they plan to build out of later like if they plan to go back to Jeddah, that'd be something that would tickle me to no end because i feel like there was a lot of things with Jeddah that could have been explored more had they had more time uh so there's two different ways you can play with that you could do that the the seeding from the film and and building stories later that build off of that or have things like with rebels and and like having saw Gerrera show up from the clone wars where it's drawing those things into that universe as well those little Easter eggs were by far and away some of the best moments for me. I was I was fist pumping, pointing. <gasps> yeah, I I don't know. I was totally having a fan moment throughout that film. At least the first three times I watched it, and then from that point on, I've seen it seven times now. But each time I've watched it after that, I have more of an emotional reaction to the scenes, uh, to the characters, their their intimate moments. Uh, right before we get the credit title, even when Saw Gerrera's like, child, come, come. Like the the thought that, you know, Saw, Jin's mom's friend, I, I mean, assuming that that's the connection there is that it's more Jin's mom. But the fact that he's there to bail her out and he becomes the father figure. And that's really the last time Jin really sees either one of her parents. Like that really hit me on my sixth time watching it. I mean, that scene, I was really choking it up, like holding it back. I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe this is really making me all getting all weepy. And I started really paying attention to the musical tones and the way that the soundtrack played and interacted with the characters on my fifth time through. It was like from that point on, like the music was really starting to appeal to me and, and just jump into my head. Gareth Edwards, the way he handles cinematography, that's apparent from the very first scene. I mean, you know, I, I complained that the only thing this film was missing was the opening crawl, but it's not necessarily something that you're going to get that hung up over. I know that was something, my big complaint was that, 
Uh, you know, I do feel like it was an integral part of the process, but I think the way that this film handled it, it worked well. They did the little kind of music thing. A lot of people jumped, you know, so you see in the planet and then you see this great shot of a shuttle going through the rings of the planet. I mean, there were so many moments like that. You see Darth Vader inside his Bakta. You see a little keyhole in a rock when they're landing the U-Wing on Jeddah. Just these great moments of cinematography that Edwards nailed, which led into the confusion of the trailer where you see all these scenes and stuff that people are like, well, why wasn't that there? I mean, there were moments like like the scene with Jin Erso where she's in that hall with all the lights lighting up and stuff. That was a fluke where Gareth Edwards was walking past her and he just caught a really cool angle. It was like, oh, oh give me a camera. We got to get this. And they, they videotaped it and then had, had it. And we're like, well, what do we do with it? They slipped it in the trailers. I think that's a brilliant use of that footage so that footage doesn't get wasted. So just, I, I, I think for me, I come away with this having it be one of my favorite Star Wars films ever because it just did so many things. But I have a level of appreciation for Gareth Edwards in the general that I never thought I would have had. I came away just like, holy cow, this man is my favorite Star Wars director of all time. I think this is a film that, you're right, sort of caters to what a longtime Star Wars fan, especially someone who was into the Legends continuity, kind of wants to see with a Star Wars story. It's not a standalone film per se, Right. I mean, they talk about these being these are these little side stories, but there's nothing standalone about this. I mean, it's a new cast. Sure. But it is showing us a crucial event within the Star Wars saga. It's fitting in connections to Rebels, to Clone Wars, to the other films and so forth, kind of weaving it together. It's got references all over the place and it's getting referenced in other places. It's sort of that idea that, you know, sort of Legends was a connective tissue. Well, so is this in essence, you know. It may not be the Skywalker story, but it is connective tissue that helps make everything else work. And I think that's actually part of why I feel like right now I'm not excited at all for the Han Solo standalone <laughs> film. I, like, Me I have, too. I have zero interest beyond just being a Star Wars fan and wanting to see a Star Wars movie in that film. And it's not just the fact that we've got the characters recast, even though they weren't all that much older than they'll probably be in this film when we saw them originally. Uh, people tend to think, oh, well, they were so much older. This is so much younger. Not really. Not by all that much so the idea that they're recasting the characters, how well are they going to pull it off? You know, is this going to be kind of more like Chris Pine as Kirk and uh, Saldana as Uhura, where they just kind of take the character and make it their own and they don't really seem like their old selves? Or is this going to be more like the way that Quinto handled Spock and the dude handled McCoy, where you're like, oh, my God, that's uncanny. How well are they going to be able to pull that off? But I think the bigger thing is how much connective tissue will that film B, or is it essentially, hey, it's an origin story? Because we haven't done an origin story really as a Star Wars film yet. I mean, you could say the prequels in a sense are the origin of Vader, but even then there was sort of the broader tapestry to it, whereas this one really feels like they're saying they're going for sort of an origin of Han and how does he get to be where he is. I'm sure I'll like it when it arrives, but that's not the kind of... Th that feels like a standalone story, right? That yeah. feels like a standalone origin story, whereas this even though it was separate, felt as though it connected to everything else. I was very impressed with how much this felt like, even though it wasn't a mainstream Star Wars film, like a mainstream Star Wars film. And they pulled off being able to tell a story that references the Jedi, references the Force, but doesn't have Jedi in it. Now, I, I noticed that they never said no lightsabers because Vader's in it and Vader has it. But just a really well-connected film and one that does the big criticism. Well, if you didn't see the other ones, if you didn't like the other ones or whatever... 
then this one doesn't have a leg to stand on. It's just like The Force Awakens. It's all about nostalgia. I would argue no. And part of my, my backing for that is that I took my dad and stepmom when they came to visit us down here. Uh, my wife was at work that day, and I was like, well, let's just go see the film. You want to see it? And they said, sure. You know, they, they wanted to check it out. But they hadn't seen a Star Wars film in years. I don't think either of them have seen all of the Star Wars films, and they basically had just a little bit of reminder knowledge that I gave them of, well, just remember where the first film back in 77 kicked off, Leia's running away, she's got the Death Star plans, it's all about getting it to the Rebellion, Vader's chasing her, and that was basically it, it's all they had. And they went in, we saw it, and they were incredibly impressed. They really liked it, wanted to see it again. So I don't think you need to walk in with a lot of background knowledge to really be able to enjoy the film, even though it does do all these things to connect with or pander to, as the case may be, um, the longtime fans. It's not limited to that. That said, you made the mention of the way the trailers work, and I think I'm the opposite. I do not like the fact that the trailers had stuff in it that weren't in the films. I understand that in some cases you might have a film being made, There are like The Empire Strikes Back. There are scenes in the trailer, like C-3PO ripping the little Wampa warning off of a door, that don't wind up making it into the film. But they were supposed to be part of the film, just happened to get cut. That's not what happened here, though. In this case, according to the way they describe it in the various uh, interviews that I've seen, some of this was, hey, look, this could be cool, let's just film it and stick it in the trailer, even though it has nothing to do with the actual film, it isn't in the actual film, and we're essentially engaging in the entertainment version of fake news, right? We are going to put in all these scenes to make people speculate and be interested about it to make them want to go see the movie, but it's going to turn out that... Those scenes actually are not in the movie. I wanted to see what happens when Jin walks up defiantly face-to-face with a TIE fighter. Wasn't in the movie and apparently wasn't meant to be in the movie. And this had an effect beyond just the audience. Because Battlefront's entire Rogue One Scarif DLC, not the entire thing, one of the segments of it, uh, one of the three parts of it, was apparently based on stuff that was in the trailers that was not in the film. Because if you go back and look at Scarif, there's a new mode, and the new mode, I think it's called Infiltration, I forget, but basically you start out, you're over the planet, and you're having to get through the shield gate. Uh, You're in a U-wing trying to get through the shield gate, which is kind of, you know, sort of fits what we saw, except it certainly sounds as though getting through the shield gate is the team trying to get through in a U-wing, as opposed to it being trying to get support down to the team that's already on the surface. Then the second part gives us basically having to do a distraction, so you're trying to blow up up some cargo shuttles, which is sort of like the film. There are explosions as distractions, only the cargo shuttles being destroyed in the film, that's when Bodhi buys it, whereas in this case it was done as a distraction. Okay, not quite meshing, but at least that footage is still there. But the entire last segment seems to be based on the premise that we see in the trailers, where... The team is running back to get the hell out of there with the Death Star plan tapes in Jin's hand as she's running. Because the entire end of the scenario is there are three different players who pick up Death Star plans and one of them has to make it to the U-Wing to get out of there with it or the Rebels lose. And it's basically a running battle to get to the U-Wing outside like what we saw in the trailer. And I wonder to what extent that was something that was actually meant for the film that maybe some at some point changed versus the people at EA and DICE being just as hoodwinked as we were in what we were seeing in the trailers and thinking surely they don't have entire action sequences with CGI and everything, completed effects, 
that's just for a trailer and not actually anything like what's going to happen in the movie. So, I don't know, to me, that was bizarre, and I really hope that's not the way they handle things going forward, because uh, from a percentage standpoint, that's a lot more unused or alternate or BS footage in those trailers than any other film I can think of in recent memory. Well, the impression I had, too, was that Gareth Edwards was just doing it on a whim and that they decided to add it to the trailer and all the promotional footage after the fact. Like, they were like, well, we've got to, why don't we just use some of that? Yeah, that's a great idea. And in that that regard, I was like, oh, that's kind of brilliant. But, I, I mean, I am with you in the aspect of watching a trailer and getting false perceptions. I mean, I go back to the force or uh, the Phantom Menace and the the way the Gungans came out of the mist and and what I thought that scene would entail when we get to it. And then when we're actually watching the film, I felt like that was such a lackluster moment. I was like, "Man, that was so badass in the trailer. What the heck?" So that that I I like that fact that they were able to turn it around because I don't think you're going to have many directors doing what Gareth Edwards was doing. I mean, that seemed that seemed like a really bold play, almost a dumb maneuver when you think about film costs money. I mean, you're wasting money in film. Yeah, you got some great gems out of there, but there are those scenes, like like the scenes with the rebel pilots on Jeddah. You know, I mean, I I, w- I was really looking forward to that. I mean, we saw the the crashed X wing and stuff. I was like, where where's the pilots? I kept looking for them, thinking maybe you know, like maybe that scene was taken out of angle or something. Like it was a zoom in from another scene. No, it, it turned out that scene was left out of the movie. What I find interesting though is when you mentioned the solo film and the excitement there. I'm in the exact same boat. And when Rogue One, as it was first introduced, I was the same way for Rogue One. I was like, I don't really know how much I'm going to care about this, but it's a war movie. I was excited about that angle. So the war movie angle, I was sold on, but the rest of it, I was kind of like, as it got closer, I got more excited, but I came away like, holy cow, that was really good. But when it comes to the solo film, I really, I I don't want an origin story. I think the story I want is how Han and Chewie get together. I don't really care about Han's origin. It's those two being the dynamic duo. That's the origin story I want to know about. And so far, it's not even Han Solo's character. Like, Alden Ehrenreich... I, I don't know enough about him that I'm not sold yet on him. Uh, people tell me not to worry. He's a great actor, so I'm taking faith and solace in that. But for me, it's the supporting cast that, that gets me tickled. You know, Donald Glover, like, I can't wait to see him as Lando. Uh, Emily Clark, I can't wait to see her in this. And now Woody Harrelson being the mentor. Those are all casting roles that I'm super excited about. Uh, but the rest of it, I'm like, ah, Rogue One's the only thing that has me excited because I wasn't expecting to be as excited about Rogue One as I was. Hey, I'm calling it now. Okay, I'm calling it now. The social media activist groups, once The Force Awakens was out there, immediately jumped on the Poe and Finn are a couple, it's not a bromance. Yes? Yes? Okay. Mm. They immediately did the same thing with Baze and Cheerit for this movie. I'm calling it now. Han and Lando will be the pair <laughs> that they say is gay in the Han Solo movie. I guarantee it. When you said how Han and Chewie got together, it popped in my head like, well, they did. Oh, aha. Right. <laughs> um, all right. So Han and Chewie. Oh, man. If those two were the ones, that would be even worse. <laughs> like like Han's all, all, you know, Han's the sort of diminutive one. And he's like braiding Chewie's hair one night or something like like Koran and the Salonian, the Salonian, <laughs> the Salonian right? I guess, okay, so we're talking Rogue One here, sort of a broader perspective uh, before we get into a lot of specifics. I would say that one of the biggest questions related to something beyond the films that people might wonder is, did we need this story, and how was it handled relative to how it was handled in Legends? And my argument would be, 
that yes, you should have a story that tells about that first rebel victory. Yes, you need a story about how the Death Star plans were acquired because surely it is a harrowing, interesting story. I actually kind of hope that someday they give us a story of the Bothans for the second Death Star within canon. Oh, I do think that this one handled it but one, it's going to handle it somewhat better because we're getting a chance to see it in film form rather than in a book or a comic or something. There's just something about seeing a Star Wars film in the theater and just the experience of that versus a lot of other ways of experiencing Star Wars stories that make it stand out. I think the the story went well. I like the fact that there are levels of sort of the good guys who do bad things for the right reasons. I like the idea of the, and we, we'll talk about this, I'm sure, later in more depth, the idea that the Death Star's flaw was intentional. Uh, or at least the reactor being unstable was intentional so that it sort of takes away some of the naysaying of, wow, you know, you know, why were the rebels so lucky for a new hope and all that? But when you go back and compare it to Legends, I think this is going to stand out as a more successful way of doing it because, in essence, kind of like with The Phantom Menace where you had Rick McCollum there who was unwilling to tell George, dude, just stop. Look at what you're doing. You're going to an extreme with, you know, the, the potty humor or whatever, the scatological humor. Instead, in this case, it was almost like, for Legends, the people approving new stories weren't willing to say no, weren't willing to say stop, because we had a story of how the Death Star plans were captured. But then we got another story that was very different on how it was done. Then another story. Then another story. We wind up with, you know, the Jedi Dawn book. We wind up with a Dark Forces Soldier for the Empire and the Dark Forces video game, which themselves don't necessarily mesh entirely with each other. We've got Lethal Alliance. We've got uh, the stuff going on in the Han Solo trilogy and so on and so on. All these different ways. So much so that they eventually had to say, oh, um, tell you what. They're actually all separate pieces of plans or elements of plans. And what's happening is that when they finally get brought together on the Tantive Four, they're able to compile them into one set of plans. And that's what gets analyzed to determine what the actual weakness was. And while that retcon makes sense or can make sense, it's, it's so obviously, yeah, this had to be retconned because there was just no one guiding the ship and making sure they weren't stepping on each other's toes and tripping over each other telling this story because all these people wanted to tell the Death Star plan story and no one was willing to tell any of the newer people, no, that story has already been told. So as much as I am a fan of, you know, Bria Theron and Kyle Katarn and all that uh, back in Legends, I think this being told one way having this be the definitive way, and who's going to have the balls to come out and try to contradict the movie in a book by telling a different version of this story, I think that is going to make this telling of the Death Star plans more successful in a broader sense than the Legends way of doing it was. It's, mm-hmm. but, and they're both kind of indicative of their media. If these days it's all supposed to be canon, it's all supposed to matter, it's all supposed to go through this, the kind of approval process then it makes sense that this would be the one way, and with a much looser way of doing that with Legends, it wound up being a looser result as well. They're, they're signs of their own times. Mm-hmm. I like the little nods as well, like like Jyn Erso sounds very reminiscent to Jan Ors. Uh, you know, I, I, I just, those kind of things appeal to me. I like the idea that you threw out there of seeing the Bothans with the second Death Star one. I think that one too would be just a glorious bloodbath you know i i think the aspect about this story the do we need this story that i think is an absolute yes is the plot for galen or so um 
the whole aspect of what he is doing. You know, I, I've said when I came away from watching this film the first time, the biggest thing that leapt out to me was the theme of trust. Uh, when Jin has her flashback, her mom says two things to her in that flashback, trust and Galen. And trusting Galen is integral to this entire film. I mean, everyone's trusting Galen all the way up to Luke. When Luke fires off the, uh, the little, you know, his little proton torpedoes there and he's trying to blow up the Death Star, you know, blasting that hole the size of Wampret, he's having faith that Galen Erso put in the right flaw. I mean, the fact that we have a planned flaw in the Death Star is something that I have been begging for for years. Uh, that was like one of my, you know, my, my big tick off moments of, of catering to the mark. I was like, are you kidding? me like is this really happening and then chopper you know of course i didn't i didn't see chopper the first time so when i heard about it online i was like oh what i'm gonna have to see this like i didn't believe it at first then i saw the photo and i was like oh my god it actually happened but when i heard general syndula i mean these were things that i wasn't expecting to get so you know i was calling those things like i wanted to see chopper or i wanted to see uh uh either sabine or Hera in a hologram or something, have them inside the base or something like that. I wanted everyone to die. I was like, there were so many little things that I thought, there's no way what I'm wanting is going to happen. Because when I call a movie, it never happens that way. It gets kind of close at times, but never that close. Uh, I did, though, I took my mom to see it. You know, you mentioned taking your, your father-in-law and stuff. And I went with my mom, who hasn't been to a movie theater since about 92. And we went and watched it, and... She actually really enjoyed it. Uh, what's funny is my mom, okay, so, so for those of you who may not know this about my mom, my mom is kind of like a despecialized fan. She's a theatrical only, and only the OT. She never really got into the prequels. She felt like George was mucking up his own stuff. She's one of those fans. So it was really, really interesting to take her to see this. Uh, and when she came away, she really liked it. But what was funny was the thing she didn't like was like she didn't care for uh, uh, Diego Luna's accent. She felt he sounded very much uh, like uh, uh, Mandy Patinkin in The Princess Bride. You killed my father. Not prepared to die. So that distracted the hell out of her. And I had mentioned, you know, that some of the, the fighter pilot scenes were cut footage from A New Hope and that the female pilots, for the most part, aside from the one U-Wing pilot, were cut footage from Return of the Jedi. And by telling her that, she was really paying attention to it to the point that when we left the film, she was like, I, I kind of think they put in too many girl pilots. It was almost distracting. I was like, really? Like, I didn't think that at all. But I, I thought it was so funny because like, I never talk Star Wars with my mom. That's always been me and my dad's thing. And so after that, we're sitting, I'm sitting with my mom and my sister and my sister doesn't do Star Wars at all. So my mom is just like talking about Jin Urso and talking about the droid because she really liked K2. And, and my sister's looking at my mom like, who in the hell are you? And she's looking at me like, you son of a duck mom. Like, <laughs> so I, I, I like that aspect of this film. I'm, I'm looking forward to more fans who've never seen a Star Wars film. This is their first Star Wars. This is their first foray into the galaxy far, far away. And I want to know what they think once they watch other films. How does it stack up to the rest? I mean, because, you know, like I said, this one for me, it jumped right to the top of the list. I was just so floored with this film. It, it produced in ways I didn't expect. A film like this to touch on. I mean, you know, we were, we were just touching on the, the gay question, and that's something I wanted to talk about because when it was brought up, it was in an article going, you know, Jason, uh, Bays and Chirrut are the gay couple Star Wars needed or, or something like that. And I was like, no, no, I don't think so. I, I, I disagreed with the article and everything, but it did have me stop and wonder, you know, like, oh, what, 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 what if? 
So when I went and I watched it my third time, I, I totally for an experiment, I pretended. I was like, you know, let's pretend that they are. Let's pretend they are a gay couple for once. And, and, and you know, it's subtly put in there. And this was the intention all along. So I pretended it was the intention all along, even though I knew it wasn't. But I did. I, I went in full heart. And honestly, it works. Like, like in a film alone, if you're only watching the film, it totally works. Granted, it wasn't the intended desire. So when you look at the rest of canon, it doesn't hold up. But it worked. I mean, when when you have Bayes yelling, Jared, come back! Like I, I mean, even after the fact that I stopped playing that into my mind, like that's an emotional scene. But thinking the fact that those two were involved, that moment for Bayes was so much more emotional for me. Thinking about that, you know, that this isn't just his comrade in arms. This is his best friend. This is this is his life mate, his soulmate. This is the person that is everything for him, and. Chirrut's belief in the force has got him basically going out and getting himself killed in front of Baze. Like, so doing that experiment, like I got a lot more out of those two. And I think that by doing that too, that also helped make them more my favorite characters. I really got a kick out of the supporting cast on this one. I mean, Jin Urso really does a good job of leading the foray, but it's, it's the cast that comes along with her that really sets it up and above. You know, I think that with those two, I mean, you don't have to necessarily be gay to have someone who is of the same gender who is sort of like your defining anchor in the world kind of thing. You know, the, the best friends, the brothers in arms, the whatever. But yeah, I would say it's another thing where we're, there's an audience out there looking to try to sort of put even more diversity into the film than is already there. And I think that's another thing. From a higher standpoint, a broader kind of getting, taking a somewhat beyond the film's approach, giving us some of these bigger picture issues here. And that's the diversity angle. And I think this is one that really sort of stands out from a diversity side of Star Wars in a way that I hadn't really thought about. Because when we think about diversity, we think about the diversity a lot of times of the casting, right? Which is basically just, hey, you know, this Star Wars film was mostly white dudes and a few white women. Now, this Star Wars film has more women, but pretty much everybody's still white. Now, this film has a black character as one of the lead characters and so on and so on. And women in the lead, like with Rey and now with Jin and so on and so on and all that kind of thing. But it's thought of as sort of like a representational thing. Like, does this person exist in the cast? But even in cases where people of diverse ethnic backgrounds or cultural backgrounds have appeared in Star Wars most of the time, they're still speaking either in American or British English accents. I mean, it, it, everybody kind of is the same way, unless they're an alien speaking in a different language. Even the droids speak in American uh, or English accents one way or the other, you know? Yeah, that drove my mom nuts. I, th I think of, like, Finn, right? And when John Boyega talks about it, um, he talks about how, you know, his dad, you know, when he told his dad that he had got the role in Star Wars and how excited his dad was, and then his dad says, uh, what is Star Wars? And he and he kind of jumps into the accent of his father. Um, you don't hear characters who talk like that in Star Wars. Maz Kanata, to an extent, had a different cadence and way of speaking. But by and large, it's American or British accents. And in this film, you bring in Diego Luna, you bring in Donnie Yen, Wen Zhang, and you bring in these guys who are not traditional white heritage as far as Star Wars' main casting has tended to be for so many years. But you don't come in and say, okay, Diego, I know you've got this accent, but we need to kind of cool it, and you need to be able to sort of do a, an American-sounding accent. Just like, you know, uh, the dude who plays Rick on Walking Dead. you got to chill with that accent. You're a Southern American dude now, and you're white, so you need to talk like it. It's Curl, not Carl kind of stuff. 
In this case, they didn't do that. Because we got Andor, and he talks with a different accent. He talks with an accent that matches the heritage and the way that the actor talks. And Donnie Yen gets to, you know, when when Chirrut delivers that line about, you know, uh, Bez Malbus used to be the greatest guardian of us all. You know, oh, I love that. The way he speaks is a little bit different, and it's owing to the heritage of the actor and their way of speaking when they speak English. And I think that is something that I never really thought about in terms of diversity in Star Wars. We think of diversity as the look of the film. I think to an extent, this film gave us a diversity of sound because the characters and the actors portraying them were able to essentially speak as themselves to some degree. There's a thing that's making the rounds on the, the websites and Facebook and whatnot where Diego Luna responded via Twitter to somebody who um, had taken their father, uh, who has a very heavy Mexican accent, to go see a, a Star Wars film. And he was so excited and talking so many times afterwards about how, you know, did, did you notice that Cassian spoke like he spoke with an accent? You know, and this... This is a major character. A Hollywood studio actually put a person with that accent in the lead role of, role of this like major blockbuster film. I think that is a, a diversity angle that is an important thing to see. Because again, I think this goes back to what we talked about, about like the uh, gender neutral character that we saw in, uh, in Life Debt, where there's a lot of controversy that could come out of it. But at the same time, on the positive side, you do have the fact that maybe someone who could never see themselves in Star Wars now is able to. And I think that that example with the father and relating to the accent that Diego Luna uses, I think that you uh, you put that into the context of Star Wars, and that's just another way in which a diversity of casting manages to draw more people in and let them see themselves. And I don't know that that was something where they would have said, we want diverse-sounding voices, so much as they're like, we got the right person for the job, that's the way you speak? Dude, just just speak like that. You don't have to tailor yourself. And that's funny, too, because my mom was like, that was the other complaint was that there was too much British accents throughout the film. And I'm like, she's like, I kind of get where they were going for it. But it's kind of like it was just a little too much. I'm like, oh, yeah, I could see that, I guess. I think uh, with as it relates to uh, the character, I guess sort of, sort of a broader sense here. One of the big complaints that I hear about the film is the characters don't get enough time to get much characterization. And I think to some degree that's true. I think that. I was able on my first viewing and second viewing in the various viewings that I've had to be able to sort of empathize with Jin. We sort of get where she's coming from, although I think that there's an unfair critique for those who really haven't thought deeply about the character that think, well, she changed her mind really fast. She's like Anakin in Revenge of the Sith. No, I mean, there's there's more to it than that. Uh, the novelization does a good job of dealing with it, but even without the novelization, I could see sort of, wow, think about what this girl has gone through as a child, and then as she became a, a grown woman, all that she's still going through, and what she must think of her father, and what that message might do to change her mind and make her think differently about her father. Of course, She's going to react in certain ways. The book does a great job as she's hearing the message. You know, he's talking about how, uh, uh, you know, if you can possibly find Jin, you know, a chance to let her know that my love for her has never faded and how deeply or desperately I've missed her. And she's thinking, you know, your love, who gives a damn about your love? You sent me to Saw. You let my mother die. You did this to me. And over and over, it's, you know, my father is alive. My father is a traitor. My father is building a weapon to destroy worlds. And it's, it's you can see sort of the breakdown going on in her mind as all these things she's thought about her father, all these negative things, because he wasn't there, sort of fades 
as, as she's actually hearing him talk about things and understands why he was gone, why he did what he did, why he was away, why she was sent to Saw and so forth. And just even on film, being able to see her reactions, like, th- I think there's a very human amount of reaction whenever she's talking to Saw at first. You know, he's like, you care nothing for the cause. And she's like, the cause? Really? What the F? You know, <laughs> you know, I, you know I, I left you. You were ready. You know, I was 16. I think the humanity of the character helps us empathize so that we're able to get more out of them. And she's certainly got a lot of characterization. I think that Diego Luna as Cassie and Andor got quite a bit of characterization. Even K2SO with his jokes got a lot of characterization. But I'm going to have to stand with those who say that Chirrut and Baze and Bodhi and to some degree Krennic didn't get enough characterization. Krennic for me was this nebulous thing. Like I knew him from Catalyst as this... You know, he's the, he's the ladder-climbing imperial bureaucrat guy who wants power, and this is the way to do it. And I was kind of like, yeah, I guess that's a different type of villain. That's interesting. It's cool to see someone who's not, you know, a Tarkin military guy. This guy's more military-industrial complex than he is, you know, fascist kind of guy. But he, did, he didn't click with me until we get towards the end, and it's, you know, the, the rebel fleet will be destroyed. You know, I lose nothing but time. And I'm like... Holy crap, that is like, th- that's the guy. You know, he, he's all about the big picture. Time is his enemy, but screw it, he's going to be able to get what he wants. But I do think that there were characters, especially Chirrut, Bays, and Bodhi, and to an extent, Krennic even, that didn't get enough screen time to be able to really get much depth to their character. Like, I want to know why it is that if uh, the uh, Borgullet, Borgullet, Borgullet screws up your brain so much, and Bodhi is really screwed up whenever they find him in the cell, why isn't Bodhi more messed up throughout the film? And the novel, the novelization, makes it clear that he was, and he's sort of fighting to always keep his thoughts together, but you don't get that on screen. Mm. And then Baze barely gets to do a whole lot of anything as far as giving him any kind of characterization. Chirrut gets characterization, but Baze is all sort of like, he's only really in many ways defined in his relation to cheer it and his gun yeah so yeah i would say that there are some valid criticisms about the amount of characterization but i think those who try to us to say that no one got enough characterization i think they're sort of missing the mark on that critique yeah you know and and galen and and lyra or so too were, were ones that fell on the side i think catalyst does a good job of getting the parents perspective as well as critic uh, I think it's the vital aspect of those characters. Like, if you want to get more out of what you're watching, that's definitely the book to read beforehand. One of the things that really leapt out to me as a father was that beginning scene when Jin's like six and she comes running in and Krennic's on his way and Galen's like, you know, it's it's time. We got to go. And he says to her, he says, say you understand. And I picked up on that in the film and it's also in the book, but... It was an interesting phrase for me because that's not something like, you know, do you understand is something I would always say to my kids. I've never thought about saying, say you understand, because he's like, he doesn't give a rat's rump that she understands. He just wants her to say it. And I was like thinking about that, like, is that like a genius thing? Like, because that seems kind of genius. Like, he's teaching his daughter how to understand by telling her, this is you understanding. Say you understand. I've, I've given you the instructions. You've heard them. Now say you understand. And eventually she kind of get that. But... It was like such a small thing, and it jumped out to me so immediate. I was like, wow, that was an interesting way to put it. 
Uh, it, but there were a lot of things like that that, that went throughout. Like, Krennic himself, the fact that Krennic was basically responsible for everything with the Death Star, I thought that was a brilliant shift. Uh, you know, I've always thought it was Tarkin. You know, this basically we find out that what I always thought was Tarkin's role was basically Krennic's, and Tarkin comes in last minute. Oh, hey, it's a success. I'll take control of the project that I brought to the Empire years ago, back when the Emperor was still Chancellor. Yeah, I'm taking control of this, Krennic. You're off to the side. You know, it does seem like they were sort of setting us up for that because you notice back in the Tarkin novel he's making all these sort of big higher order decisions but it shows all these other responsibilities that he has and he's more just kind of keeping an eye on things for that so I was kind of I was kind of surprised with Tarkin how little direct involvement that he had that he wasn't like overseeing the day-to-day stuff and then to find that there was a guy doing it I think that's actually a pretty cool thing and I would assume that this must have all been stuff that was already you know in the story group's mind when they were green lighting the Tarkin novel in the first place surely it had to be yeah surely uh you know and you, you mentioned again some of those little moments moments for the other characters. I think about Magnificent Seven. I really enjoyed that. But the biggest complaint on that was the same thing as this, that the side characters didn't have as much screen time to really jump to life. And I think about Baze, I think about Chirrut, and in a lot of ways, they're like Goodnight Robichaud and Billy Rocks. Uh, you know, I mean, that was kind of the relationship I got out of those two when I first watched it. But, you know, we mentioned the Stover effect and Alexander Freed, you know, you, you were just mentioning this stuff with, with Jin. He really goes out of his way. There is a the moment of Chirrut's death scene in the film where Baze runs up to him and in the book... It's 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 another one of these great moments that Alexander Freed just injects some more humor, and it goes, he was dying, of course. He felt Baze's heavy, familiar tread pound the ground, smelled his brother's sweat as he leaned close. He wanted to say, Baze, my eyes, I can't see! But Baze Malice had always needed comfort more than humor. And... You know, you had mentioned the fact that the way he said, Baze Malvus was the most devoted guardian of us all. And then there's the, the line where he goes, you know, let them pass. Let them pass in peace. Like, I loved Donnie Yen in this film. Like, the fact that he tried so hard to keep the blank expression of a man that would be blind. Like, like when he hears the ATACT coming, <laughs> he's just like, the way he like shifts his head as he's like listening and feeling at the same time. There were so many moments of that that I loved. And I think his character appealed to me the most because he was, in a sense, he was our Force sensitive. He was our Jedi that wasn't a Jedi. I mean, what is it, Bay says, there are no Jedi here, just dreamers like this one. But that that's one of those things, like, I, I think that they were too nebulous with that. Like, people are still like, oh, no, he's not Force-sensitive at all. And it's like, well, clearly he's Force-sensitive, whether or not he was ever a Jedi. I don't think he had any kind of Jedi formal training. But clearly, he has the Force. The Force is with him. He's using some Force abilities. You know, uh, Insider says, Chirrut can't see, but he can feel with his heart and believes in the Force, which, okay, so he feels with the heart. I, I think they're playing with words because he senses darkness around Cassian. He senses Cassian keeps his prison with him wherever he goes. He senses the Imperial pilot. He does that thing into his hand right before he shoots a TIE fighter out of the air, and it happens to manage to shoot it at just the right angle that it collides into the only turbo laser that's there, taking out two with one shot. He takes out all those troopers. He he senses the kyber crystal being around Jin's neck. And now, of course, though, there is something about that to Catalyst where they talk about the fact that the kyber crystals being around them does enhance some force sensitivity. So there's all those things in play that lead me to believe that he has to have been 
somewhat trained in how to sense things or he's had some type of, you know, relationship. Granted, being blind is going to put him in an ability, you know, if he was born blind, he's going to be using things that would have been considered the force at an age that, you know, would put him in a realm of Jedi training just through natural, you know, discovery. Uh, but I, I, I think to say that he has no connection to the Force and that it's just his pure belief in the Force and that the Force is rewarding him, I, that I find, I find that to be a stretch. I, I, I think it's it's simpler just to say that clearly he's got a high metachlorine count, just not high enough. Yeah, I'm told that in his younger days he had a, a law firm with his old college buddy and then uh, donned a mask and fought crime in Hell's Kitchen for a little while uh, or whatever <laughs> Jetta City's version of Hell's Kitchen is. All right, so getting back to this idea of, I mean, this is a movie with, you know, we talk about Cheer It. It's got a lot of good humor in it. K2SO's humor is somewhat deadpan, somewhat sarcastic. You've got, you know, you know are you kidding me? I'm blind when they put the hood over his head. The whole oh, audience just erupted into laughter Jana, both times seeing it. I took Jana to watch that, and we we left at the Iridu scene because she got bored. But that scene when that happened, I was looking at her, and she didn't do anything. And about two and a half, three, four minutes go by. And she's just <laughs> <laughs> to later and I'm like, what? She, she's, are you kidding me? I'm blind. He said, are you kidding me? I'm blind. <laughs> and so she comes home. The first thing she says to her mom, mom goes, so what'd you think of the movie? Are you kidding me? I'm blind. And like my wife's like, what the hell is she talking about? Like, oh, it, that, that's like the one thing she remembered. She just still to this moment. I'm Jada, what's your favorite part? Are you kidding me? Like, oh man, you kill me, kid. Nice. Yeah, so, and it's funny because this is a film that has those really good comedic moments, but the tone is very dark overall. Um, the tone is darker than a lot of the Star Wars films. I've been of the mind to say recently that if you really want to ask somebody to rank their Star Wars films, you know, favorite down to least favorite, we really need to almost have two lists now the, the hopeful and the down, because. It's easy to compare, say, this to Revenge of the Sith and The Empire Strikes Back. It's not quite as easy to compare it to other Star Wars films that are more hopeful in their uh, in their approach and so forth. But I want to kind of get into, again, kind of the broader topics of the, the themes here and this idea of sort of the moral ambiguity of the film as a whole. I mean, we're used to seeing the rebellion and thinking of it as it is this unified front against the Empire by the time the films come around. Even in the Rebels cartoon series, we know there are different groups out there, but we assume that all these different groups are fighting with the same goal in mind, even if their tactics might be different. But here, even though Saw's group is sort of out there as the extremists, um, you take them, but then you look, and you sort of sit them aside, then you look at the whole rebellion that meets with the council and everything on Yavin 4, and they're even fractured there. There's ones looking for a diplomatic approach, including Mon Mothma, which kind of blew me away. You've got people out there looking for a more militaristic action, those out there who are more about, you know, we need this done before we can do anything, we need this done, we can't do the a type of attack now because we're not ready, the rebellion is finished, and all that. They're much more fractured and more realistic to what a, a revolutionary movement or a rebellious movement oftentimes in history has tended to be as far as the leadership structure and keeping people part of something larger than themselves. We have the element of uh, no closure, right? Jin's father dies before she really gets a chance to have closure with him. She's able to see him again. He's able to see her one last time. So in a sense, there's that closure. She's had her mind changed by his message, but they don't really get a chance to reconcile in any way beyond that. It's very much like Luke and Vader, 
right? Where the father dies before there's a chance to really expound upon any type of reconnection that is happening. There were redemption in some, in one of their characters' eyes, at least, that's happening there. We've got a film in which the entire team, the entire initial team, dies in some form or another, and it's a very rapid fire, you know, dominoes falling type of of series of deaths, as we expected. We have characters sort of accepting it, uh, Cassian and Jin hugging right there. Thank God they didn't do it as a love story, I must say. Thankfully, they did not. But hugging as the the wave of of energy or whatever winds up washing over them that kills them. And then... what was really good about that scene, though, is Jin is looking into the explosion. It's like she's accepted her destiny. She's ready to embrace it head on, whereas Cassian is looking away. And then as it comes over them, like he, if you look at his eye, he has a momentary panic as it hits them. I, I thought that was a really cool. I don't know if Gareth Edwards did that on purpose, but I was like, I dialed right in on that on my first watching. And I think that she's probably more accepting by and large of it based on just the characterization. But I think that the thing that really stuck out with me is this idea of... The moral ambiguity of the main characters and the idea of the rebels, because Cassian is very much the, and so are the people who wind up joining the team, you know, whenever the main group says no, where they're like, you know, we've all done these horrible things, whether it's assassins, spies, whatever we've been, we've done these really bad things, but we've done it because we believe the cause was just, and essentially the ends were justifying the means, but if those ends are no longer going to be possible. If defeating the Empire is no longer going to be possible, then all those things that we did, there's no justification for them, right? If the ends justify the means, but there is no ends, then nothing justifies the means. We are bad guys. And and just the, the darkness they sort of carry around in that sense and this sort of need to do something for that redemption, I think is a very powerful point of this. It's part of why I really like Cassian's character. But then you get into... There's, there's sort of this set of moments that, to me sort of epitomize how this film takes a very different moral approach than the others in terms of allowing more ambiguity. And that is the friendly fire angle. Because we basically have, here is the mission, we need to go assassinate Galen. And even though Cassian chooses not to do so when the opportunity presents itself, it winds up happening anyway, not because the Empire kills him, not because he's executed by Krennic or taken prisoner and then killed or something because of sending out the message. No, it's because the rebels have a command structure, they send in the ships, they send in the X-Wings to do, and the Y-Wings to do a bombing and attack run, it's too late to call them back, and they, in doing their jobs, wind up with some friendly fire casualties or some collateral damage and wind up killing Galen. And you get onto the ship afterwards, and they address it head-on. You know, uh, those were alliance bombs that killed him. And the, the back and forth between the two of them, him not being willing to really take responsibility, you know, you're in shock, you're in shock, you're in shock. And then finally, you know, he has this whole thing about, you know, we don't all have the luxury of following orders or believing in the cause only when it's necessary and such. And, um, you know, you can't talk your way around this one. And his response is, I don't have to, you know, not I'm not going to try to or anything like that. I did my duty. It was my job. It's what I am. Screw you. This is simply reality. I don't have to justify a damn thing to you or to anyone else. But eventually, once then they get back to the base and they decide to join in this this rogue mission, it's like he's finally saying, you know what, I'm choosing that I, I do have to justify in a sense. And, and it's a great moment because it says a lot about them as they're walking. You know, she says, I'm not used to someone sticking around when things go bad. And you got to wonder if before that moment, if Cassian would have stuck around. And then his comment, you know, welcome home, is very much sort of a, you've always been a part of this thanks to your father and thanks to Saw. You've already always thought like this, only now you've finally found your place, in essence. You know, we are now this extended family of yours. And and all of that gives me, I think, 
a real love for this film because they're not afraid of dealing with those things and getting a little more human than the more fantasy-driven, moral high-ground-driven, very clear black-and-white approach taken by the other films, which, granted, was part of Lucas's vision, but this being a standalone story got a chance to, you know, kind of play it a little differently, and I really appreciate the way that they did so. Yeah, Cassian, when he's first introduced, we see him being a cold-blooded murderer when he kills Tivik, and that, like, I didn't realize it the first time, but that was that's what set everything in motion with their where they had to get Jin because Tivik was his connection to Saw. And I like the fact it's uh, uh, Jason Fry's Rebel Dossier has a lot of really cool information. Like we find out that that Cassian is a Fulcrum agent. Uh, Operation Fracture is basically what this whole film is. They are operate. They are doing Operation Fracture, uh, which is which is odd that it wasn't mentioned at all. Like not even once uh in the film but i do i like the fact that because cassian has to kill tivik because tivik's got the broken arm he can't get out they've been discovered and if he doesn't kill tivik tivik's going to get captured and he's going to end up giving up stuff so he keeps that loop closed you know he is a uh he's a spy you know he he works for the interrogation group you know he's he's that type of guy and so he does what has to be done, and that changes the plan. Now he's got to go, and and they've got to bust out Jen Erso because she'll be a better. I, I just I thought the way that that played in to the story and the characters themselves at the same time, I thought it was a brilliant move. Uh, you had also mentioned K two uh, doing some humorous things. There was a great moment of ad libbing uh, when they come out after he did the bomb, you know, and he shows up. Oh, you're right. I should just go back to the ship. And as they're heading back, and the stormtroopers show up right before. Uh, Chirrut shows up and does his scene where he goes, these are prisoners? They're going to imprison for imprisonment. When he slaps Cassian Andor in the face, that was ad-libbed, and you can see Diego Luna, he's holding his face because he's laughing. He's trying not to laugh. He's trying desperately to hold it together. And once I learned nice. that, I rewatched it. Oh my god, that scene is so much more funny. I mean, it was already funny, but now that you know that, that Diego Luna is just barely holding it together, pay more attention when you catch that. It is just great. I love the fact that they had him on there and allowed him to do those ad-libbing. And getting to the aspect of deleted scenes, we see through one of those little featurettes where we see Alan Turdick all dressed up, where we see where he probably would have died in front of the bunker, and we also see that Cassian Andor was already laying down right there. So it was, you know, there was definitely a different film, and I think articles have talked about it too, that they did shift the, the tone of the last act of the film quite a bit. So while you have Gareth Edwards filming a lot of things that weren't in the film, you also have a different version of the ending that plays out very differently from what we see. I'm very curious down the road to see, you know, Hopefully they'll give us like an alternate ending maybe or like, you know, something like that in a bonus uh, feature to see what they were going to do. I think that would be a really cool little insight for the fans. I think and I wasn't really thinking about this until you said that about how the endings were somewhat different. If it's just sort of running on the beach and trying to escape in a big firefight and then the characters are dying, that's one thing. But in the final film, the deaths of the characters are made a lot more personal based on sort of personal choices and what these characters were trying to do. I mean, Jin and Cassian dying after they complete the mission. Their goal was, I've got to get this done, I've got to get this done. Now they have, now there's a level of acceptance of what's going to happen to them. Bodhi, for his part, you know, he's the guy, he, you know, he's going to have to re do some redemption. He's, it's all about, you know, I want to do this because Galen said this is my way to redemption and whatnot. He manages to get the, the message out right before the grenade goes in that winds up blowing up what he's in. But 
you know, as he's doing it, he says, you know, this is for you, Galen, right? So you have that level of closure. You have Chirrut, you know, using the force and, and going out and helping the group and sacrificing himself in that way, uh, which sort of fits with his nature as a guardian and his belief system. And then Baze sort of being brought back around to the idea of the force and, uh, in essence, you know, dying as a way of sort of getting payback uh, or getting justice for what happened to Chirrut and so on and so on. Like the, and, and K2SO. You know, a very straightforward, this is what it has to be, sort of a logical droid-like way of thinking and being willing to sacrifice himself for Cassian. Uh, all these different elements here give us characters who are dying, but they're dying essentially for what they believe in. Even Krennic! Even Krennic, as much as he was trying to keep control of the base and everything like that, you know, that was his work, etc., etc., winds up being killed. You know, when the Death Star fires the laser, it takes off the top of the tower, including him, before yeah. it hits the base. And, and he's essentially, you know, hoisted on his own batard. He's killed by his own weapon, very directly in that sense, not just the wave of destruction. So, it, I think that the way that they wind up doing that worked very well to set up that sort of thing. But from a characterization standpoint... One of the things I know we'll need to talk about, so I guess we can sort of pivot there, is bringing dead actors or bringing people back to life or de-aging them in an extreme way. We had Leia show up with someone playing her as essentially a body double, and then they went in and CGI a 19-year-old Leia Organa onto that person for the last scene of the film. And of course, there's the big one, right? Tarkin. They get the guy who played a young Sherlock Holmes opposite and older Sherlock Holmes of Peter Cushing in the old Sherlock Holmes films. Someone who intimately kind of knows Peter Cushing or knew Peter Cushing and had portrayed a younger version of him before, emulating that performance, Guy Henry, and having a, a CGI version of the face put over him, kind of like what they did for uh, Christopher Lee for the Dooku action sequences in the yeah. prequels, but way more, and in essence created a new performance for an actor who had been dead since, what, the 90s, I guess? And that, I think, I, I didn't expect to see Tarkin actually take a big role in this. I expected if we saw him, it'd be, like, from behind, and we wouldn't actually see his face. Or if we did, it'd be very yeah. fleeting. It'd be something like where they got Wayne Pygram, from, uh, Scorpius from Farscape, to be Tarkin for Revenge of the Sith, when he really didn't look much like Tarkin. He looked more like what happens if you take Scorpius and try to make him look more human. Yeah. So, that whole thing... Uh, and opening that door, and the fact that now StarWars.com, as of last night, has put out a statement basically saying, no, we are not going to do that for Carrie Fisher so that Leia can continue to appear. I think it opens up a lot of interesting questions for what film can do. Um, we're, we're beyond just, we're able to change this, uh, change Mark Ruffalo into a believable-looking Mark Ruffalo as Hulk face. Now we're actually just trying to recreate people to make them look photorealistic as they would have been in life who have passed away years ago. Not using... Redone or, or, or refound footage like with the X-Wing and Y-Wing pilot, the leaders, but actually recreating the person. And sort of where the line is drawn for that, because I think it worked exceptionally well here. My dad and stepmom had no idea with Tarkin that the actor had passed away. They thought it was the yep. real guy. They were so only did my mom. They were thrown off by Leia just because they knew that Carrie Fisher was much older now. Uh, but it's kind of blown away by Tarkin and that whole thing. But and I brought this up on Cloud City Casino. I'm curious about where the likeness rights issues come from. Because you and I have talked before about how, you know, if you look at the novels out of Japan, the covers are awesome. But in a lot of cases, it's because they're able to base the look of the older version of the characters on how the actors actually aged, especially Harrison Ford and Mark Hamill. But then you've got 
over in the U.S., you know, you would have novels set way in the future of the franchise relative to the films, and the characters still, for the most part, looked like themselves from the movies because there's that whole likeness rights issue where you've got the likeness rights for when they appeared in your films, but you can't necessarily use their likeness 30 years later, 20 years later, as a 20-year-old or 20 years older version of them because you don't have the likeness rights to that actor now. You'd have to pay them all over again and so forth. And here we are in a situation where, with Peter Cushing's estate's approval— as family's approval, they've not just recreated the look of a character for a background scene or something or for a book cover. They've essentially brought back the guy for virtually all intents and purposes. And that's something that's so new. I'm assuming likeness rights law and contracts don't even account for that yet. So I'm very curious, you know, for instance, if I, you know, if I'm the person behind, let's say, Star Trek, and I want old Leonard Nimoy as old Spock. I don't want to age Zachary Quinto. I want Leonard Nimoy. Could I just recreate him and be fine legally, be fine contractually, because that's the way he looked whenever he was in these previous films of ours, so we're fine? What if the family objects? Do they have legal grounds to object? Can they sue? Do you have to make a contract for that sort of performance outside of the person who's there as a stand-in? Because it's all otherwise digitally generated. At what point... Do you own your likeness in terms of someone being able to digitally recreate you? I mean, I think back to the Crispin Glover thing with Back to the Future 2 where he didn't come back from the film and somebody was made up to look close enough like him to make it almost seem like he was in the film as George McFly. And there was the lawsuit that changed the way likeness rights law worked in Hollywood. Yeah. And now we have this. I'm very curious to see where the fallout is for that. But I'm curious what, what, from the standpoint of what you think, like if they don't have the family's blessing on this. Should they have gone forward with it? Should they have been willing to go that direction for Carrie Fisher after she passed? Whereas I think right now they're saying they're not going to, and it's out of respect for her, but you could make the same argument that they did that they said they brought Cushing in as Tarkin because they believe this is a role that he would have taken that he would have taken and that he would be proud of that performance and whatnot, which is sort of saying, well, in honor of him, we did do it, as opposed to in honor of him, we didn't do it. Should they be doing this sort of thing? And under what circumstances is it okay? And are there circumstances under which it would not be okay? Yeah, that's that definitely are, are questions that are going to have to be addressed down the road. I mean, I'm, I'm still in the aspect of was it too premature for StarWars.com to say, no, they're going to not do a CGI general layout? I mean, that seems way premature to take that option off the table, I, especially after the success of the Tarkin. I mean, of the two models, yeah, I'm in the same boat. My mom didn't recognize Tarkin. Uh, Tarkin definitely lasted well, but I, I, I think I think it does. It, there's questions that have to be answered about family rights because you know, I mean, I feel like Carrie Fisher would have totally been okay with herself being CGI'd if had be. So you know, if the family dis. There's so much there, man. Like, if the family says no, but the actor was like, okay, then I would say then it doesn't matter what the family said because the actor was already okay with it. But if you never got a statement from the actor at all, then now you're, you're basically, you're going off of the family, the family at that point. Um, there's a lot of things to consider. Now they'll ask the question. Now they can say, hey, would you want to do this or want us to do this if you passed away? But I mean, that, that's because of this film. Nobody would have thought to ask this question a year ago. Yeah. Well, and now we've got all those computer uh, imaging softwares and stuff where you could take Mark Hamill, set him in the computer room. They could completely scan him. So, God forbid, if anything happens to Hamill, 
they've got a you know a computer version ready to go. You know they duplicated CGI it for insurance. All CGI on yeah. CGI insurance. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, think about it. I mean, what they pull out like fifty million or something like that insurance on Carrie Fisher. I mean, th- the fact that they even had that in place was somebody was smart. Uh, you know, I I would have never thought to have done that, and I the fact that they're actually. You know, claiming it like, I mean, that's got to be somebody in the insurance industry's nightmare right there. But yeah, I mean, this whole situation, you know, when we found out about what happened to Carrie, the only thing that gave me some solace at that time was the fact that we had a CGI Carrie Fisher was like, wow, they've, they've done amazing things. And, you know, maybe they'll be able to salvage this double tragedy. I mean, it's tragic on multiple levels because not just the human side of the tragedy, but the in-universe story side of you've committed to these actors to play these roles. And now one of them is not there to complete it. What you had planned to do cannot be what you're going to do now. You're going to have to readjust the plan. I'm very interested 10 years from today to look back and find out what the plan was and how they changed and altered the course to give us what they will eventually have given us. Uh, So these are all things that, that immediately jumped to mind when I heard that Carrie was not doing well when she first came off that plane it was immediate oh my god what what is you know not just the human factor of it all but just the fandom side of it of you know i was so looking forward to so much of this stuff i i'd you know i'd fought my own preconceived notions as to what carrie fisher should look like at this age because of like you said with legends you know carrie fisher wasn't who i envisioned when i closed my eyes back then and then seeing her in the force awakens that that blew all my ideas of what i thought she needed to be away i mean she was princess leia she was general leia so there is that part of me that feels like it's it is premature to say no to that i do understand the aspect of you know i i feel like that's the human thing to do you know to say no but i think unless the family is like we don't want it i think the family would feel honored to have her represented still so i kind of do wonder if it's more because the family is like you know it's still it's too new right now can we just can we just put this on the back burner in general like i almost wonder if that's part of where they were coming from it not just like you know she's friend and family of all of us and and you know like i kind of wonder if that's where the statement came from and maybe they are still thinking about it but they're just like you know the rumors are hot heavy right now and we don't want this being the top story of 2017 so we're going to put this out there to kind of kill it for now and we'll readdress it later and it's funny because you know initially you know as soon as we heard that she had passed away the conversations do start and the wondering does start well because of what they did with rogue one will they do a cgi leia and there were some people who were like, it's wrong. It's too soon to even have that conversation. You're right. And just started blasting anybody who dared ask the question. And it's funny because I guess they think they're somehow protecting the memory of Carrie Fisher by stifling that conversation, at least for a time. But I, th- I would argue that, and I, yeah, I've said this before, that Carrie Fisher, given her outlook on things and given the way that she was outspoken, I would imagine if she were watching that conversation, She'd be the one stepping in, flipping the bird and saying, screw that politically correct, emotionally correct, safe space bullshit. This is a conversation that should probably be had because somebody's going to have to decide. This is a woman who, in the later years, is one of the more outspoken individuals. I mean, she talked unfiltered about voluntary shock therapy about how important it is for certain aspects of mental illness to be able to be discussed and talking about how you know oh you might hurt what was it you might hurt one of my one or two feelings i have left if you talk about my 
looks at an older age, boo freaking who. I mean, she was not someone who would shirk back from a controversial topic if she felt it needed to be addressed. And I would imagine that she would, like if this hadn't been Carrie Fisher, if this had been Mark Hamill, if this had been Harrison Ford, uh, oh, I guess maybe not Harrison Ford because, you know, character's already gone. But if this had been Mark Hamill, if this had been someone else who would be coming back, that surely she would have been someone outspoken about that. And it's funny because, or not funny, I guess there's sort of an irony, I guess, to it, because this was a conversation that we were having back around, what, 2012, 2013, hey, we're going to make a post-Return of the Jedi Star Wars film, and it's going to be the beginning of a new trilogy. Uh-oh, time out. Fans start wondering, what if any of the regulars pass away? They're not super old, but and, and we had said at the time that if anyone were to pass, it would either be the accident-prone Harrison Ford because of an accident, or it would probably be Carrie Fisher, because Carrie Fisher had had such a rougher life and things that she had gone through physically, medically over the years, that odds were if someone was going to go, it would probably be her. And the conversation, right, well, what would they do in that case? So surely behind the scenes, they must have had some thought of that. I mean, they've got the insurance policies in place and whatnot. It's just sort of one of those, it's interesting that there are so many different levels of discussion that can be had. And Rogue One, because of the CGI Cushing, has really thrown open the door to all these different avenues of discussion that we wouldn't have thought were realistic, you know, a year ago. And in a lot of ways... This is continuing the Lucas tradition, right? Lucas had, in his people with ILM, he had to make ILM to make A New Hope. The people at ILM were really sort of people who were very innovative in how they did the effects. And non-linear editing with Edit Droid and Sound Droid, uh, uh, the, the digital animation things with Pixar that eventually broke away and became its own company and so on. There's all these things that were done over the years from Lucas trying to push filmmaking forward. And when it came to the prequels, it was now I can do whatever the hell I want because I can make the environments and have almost everything filmed in front of a green screen and make it believable instead of me having to be constrained by the environments that I'm in. Not just special effects being constrained, but now the world being constrained. And now, this film has taken it that next step to be able to say, we don't even necessarily need to abide by the bounds of mortality anymore. Um, it's it's going to be a very interesting idea going forward. And once again, Star Wars is breaking ground on it. What makes people uncomfortable, and like you said, you know, Carrie Fisher had an outlook that I think this fandom is going to be missing. She could say and do the things that fans like you and I, if we were get caught doing it, we would be lambasted by the rest of fandom. But because she was our princess, people were okay with it. I mean, she had a Prozac pill urn. I mean, the woman had a sense of humor. You know, I mean, that I think is one of the biggest tragedies of it all is we do not have that spokesman anymore for morbid humor that's true i mean i can see i think like like her and mark hamill are the two i could see sitting back laughing with each other watching episodes of south park <laughs> you know what i mean like i can't necessarily see harrison ford's kicking back and cracking up at south park but i could see those two <laughs> doing it you know like then they'd no, be like oh oh that's so good you know you know and somebody says you know, you know i hate sand it gets everywhere and then you know carrie fisher you know quoting cartman being like oh what's wrong you got sand in your vagina or something <laughs> i can see that happening but you couldn't necessarily see it with others so it's it's certainly a perspective that'll be missed uh i would say kind of looking back i mean i know we're we're approaching the the hour and a half mark here and we don't want to go too long so i think the only thing that really stands out beyond that to me Aside from just a question of where this film would rank, which we can address uh, last, I guess, especially now that we've seen it a couple of times, or seven, as the case may be. <laughs> but um, I think the other the other topic would be just the music, because they did have uh, Giacchino being brought in with only about a month to go. And the last time we spoke, I talked about how the music didn't really make an impression on me. 
And what I find is that now that I've seen it again, it's kind of like my, like, I got an attention thing, apparently. Uh, as an aside here, I just went to get my hearing tested the other day. Mm-hmm. And because what I'm finding is that I'm having to have my wife repeat things more often. I'm oh, having to turn the volume the up same on things. Issue. You're like, uh-oh. Yeah. And... And I'm finding that, like, when I'm working on something, like, and, and I lived by myself for so long that I never really thought about it, but, like, if I'm working on something, if I'm sitting here writing or reading something, I'm hearing it in my head, and it's almost as if I'm really hearing it because it'll muffle out anything somebody else around me is saying and make it hard for me to pay attention to that as well. So I went in, I did the hearing test, and the hearing test came back on the high end and very low end of the spectrum. I'm a little bit lower than normal, but not even at the mild hearing loss range. And in the range of things we normally hear, my hearing is perfect. And his response was, the doctor's response was that this, as we get older especially, this is more of a cognition thing. This is more of an attention thing. So like to make sure my wife isn't having to repeat herself because she hates that, I'm asking her, you know, if I'm doing something else and you're about to say something that you want me to actually hear, do me a favor and get my attention first. And then I can shift my attention and know that I'm going to get what you're going to say. And I'm recognizing that. So I'm trying to be a little bit more multitasking and always kind of keeping an ear out just in case my attention needs to be drawn elsewhere. But my attention, when it's focused in on one thing, it's very myopic. It very very much closes out the rest to the point where I thought I was losing my hearing. It's that extreme. <laughs> I don't know if that's normal or if that's just the thing with me. I've often wondered if, I, if there were some issues, but whatever. But because of that. I think what happened was on my first viewing of the film, I was so tuned into what are the characters doing? What are they saying? What is this planet? What is this? How does it fit in chronologically? I was so focused on that, that the music, because it wasn't so iconic, like the musical cues and how very often they're reused and reinterpreted, like say in The Force Awakens, it just slipped past me. Now that I knew what the story was and could go see it again and listen to the music, I see those repeating themes coming back. I see the way they were able to sort of play in their new version of certain things with, for instance, the uh, the, the Yavin 4 entry and bringing in, you know, the, the traditional Star Wars music and such. Um, I'm still bummed that on the soundtrack we don't get a slowed down, you know, piano version of the theme like we had on the trailers. And it annoys me that we don't have the final end credits overture montage, whatever you want to call that huge medley of all the different music, plus, you know, the Star Wars music as it fades out and everything on the soundtrack. But I have to take back what I said. I think the music is quite good. It fits the film. And I am seeing those recurring themes. But whether it was my attention or just that it wasn't quite as in your face as John Williams, for whatever reason, that first viewing, I walked out and just it had made no impression on me at all. But I I have to take it back. When I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And. Now that I've had a chance to see it again, I I do appreciate the music on this one. Yeah, for me, it was the third watch. From that point on, the music really stood out. But I, I will say, though, it, it has no bombastic tracks. There's no Duel of Fates. There's no Imperial March. There's no Twin Sun, uh, you know, the sunset, binary sunset. I think for me, the only real song that really jumps out is the Rogue When they do the Rogue One theme and you hear that song, that's about it. And I really, I do, I enjoy the heck out of it. But... I think that that's the one aspect that's missing is that there's really no major one theme song that you're just like, oh, there was that moment. Because, like, I think about The Phantom Menace and when Maul shows up and that music for Duel of Fates kicks in, that was a, I mean, that moment was bam. I, I still remember, you remember that music started with the doors open? Like, immediate, you know? I mean, and I didn't have that. Sounds like you didn't have that. So. I did enjoy the soundtrack, but I do feel like it was missing that one element, you know, that one catch song. And, and I don't think that they took the theme and, and replayed it through enough that it jumped right out. It That's why it took me so long to get there. 
I did enjoy the music. I, I think it was by the sixth time I actually started listening to the music by itself, not with anything else. Some of the other things I'd like to touch on real quick is the Hammerhead ship that we see. I saw a really great article where it talks about how the uh, Hammerhead crew actually survives. That when we watch the Star Destroyers collapsing into the shield gate, you can see that the Hammerhead has all of its escape pods already released. They were actually planning on having some of the uh, them landing on the planet below and kind of chilling on the beach, which means they would have probably died anyway but would have died anyway but i was like oh that's kind of cool so if you're actually paying attention you can see that they have already launched those pods so i was like oh that's a cool moment so with those guys when they arrived been like a boris out of a golden eye i am invincible (laughs) bam (laughs) probably so probably so uh another one was uh the age factor you know of you look at alec guinness playing obi-wan and then you look at jimmy smith's playing bale but someone pointed out that Alec Guinness at the time of A New Hope was 63, and Jimmy Smits right now is 61. And I was like, oh, well, okay. Knowing that fact, I can put all my prejudices aside on that age factor. It's like, you know, some people are like, oh, well, you know, the Tatooine angle, it ages you older. But, you know, you think about this. Like, if Alec Guinness would have been Steve Martin, <laughs> I mean, oh, he looks so old. Like, no, he just he went gray sooner than more p- other people. I mean, Jimmy Smith is—he's just a fine wine. He's like he's like Sam Elliott. He just gets better looking with age. Whereas Alec Guinness was a little more rough around the edges. That's all. There was a, th- a two-year gap in those guys, but they look a lot. I mean, you take the picture of the two and you set them next to each other. It doesn't look like two years, but. It, the reality is it's two years. So that put that for me completely aside. I'm no longer as concerned with that. The one that I am still concerned about, though, is Mon Mothma knowing about Bale's Jedi friend. I'm like, come on, Bale. Loose lips sink starships. Kenobi is trusting you with that secret, and you're telling Mon? Like, I get she's like the leader of your rebel cell or her own rebel cell. I'm not exactly sure, but but come on. Like, and why would you go to Bale or to Bale to go to Kenobi when you've got Kanan and Ezra and Ahsoka already in your cell? Like, what the hell? Well, see, well, see that assumes that Kanan, Ezra, and Ahsoka are even around. And we assume that Ahsoka at this point is probably dead, maybe coming back. We don't know. There's a lot we don't know from Rebels. Like, maybe that is how she's going to find out about it. Because now we know that we're going to see Obi-Wan upcoming in Rebels and such. Not just as a hologram. But I think that that didn't get me so much because it's not like he's saying, she's saying, you know, we need your Jedi friend and the kid. You know, the secret was, the biggest secret was Luke and Leia and who they were. And the idea that he might mention, you know, there is a Jedi out there as an asset to one of his closest allies and someone who's been an ally since at least the era of the prequels, as we see in all those cut scenes that went up in the novelization, among other things, from episode three. I think saying, you know, I've got this Jedi out there, uh, it may be time to finally bring him in. I could see her being willing to say that at this point, especially when she's starting to realize that a diplomatic solution just isn't going to be possible, even though she was the one who was kind of pushing that for a while, much to Draven and, and others' dismay. So I could see that as being realistic. I don't see why people are quite so bent out of shape about that. Now, if he had si- if she had said, you know, I need you to bring the Skywalker kid, we need to keep him safe, and be like, you told him about the Skywalker kid? But to just say, you know, there are some Jedi survivors and I know at least one that's in hiding and maybe now it's time to sort of bring him out. I don't see that as a big thing. I think people are getting their their, their underwear out of shape for no reason with that one, at least from what I can see. But then maybe I'm just extra forgiving. Yeah, maybe. I mean, things that also get people's underwear in a bunch are Sagarera's changes. Uh, what's it Moz says about eyes <laughs> being windows to the soul and whatnot? 
So we see Saw Gerrera in the Clone Wars. He's got those uh, piercing blue eyes. We see him in Rogue One. He's got the uh, Forrest Whitaker eyes of death. And then we see him now in Rebels, and he's got a greenish color to his eyes. Notice the ever-changing Saw Gerrera's eyes. Huh. See, t- t- to me, though, the fact that they used a middle ground in, Clo- in uh, Clone Wars, in Rebels, works well because... Unless they're going to go in and digitally change the eye color like they did to Sebastian Shaw to match Hayden Christensen, you weren't going to be able to make the previously existing Clone Wars eyes and Forrest Whitaker match. And if you wanted Forrest Whitaker to be the actor, he was going to have his own eye color. So without context or anything, that was the case. That was going to be what it has to be. So they're just giving it a transition thing and maybe sort of leaving it up to historical interpretation or maybe it's part of whatever has made him so uh, so ill and whatnot. And I can see this as, you know, oh my goodness, it's a continuity thing that's not exact, but... It's such a thing that's so obviously because, hey, the actor just doesn't have the eye color and they went with the guy they wanted for the part, not looking for someone who had to have the right eye color. Then I'm like, wow, this is mountains out of mohills. <laughs> and this is me talking and I'm a nitpicker. I, I was the same way. I'm like, I was like, well, maybe it's the poison. I was coming up with all these different angles, though. I do question why they wouldn't just digitally change the eyes because the eyes for Saw Gerrera were one of the the best features of that character model from the Clone Wars. It was like both him and his sister had such piercing, bewitching eyes. But I, I got to say, though, this was my first time watching Forrest Whitaker in a role that I'm aware of. And the way he delivered his lines was brilliant. Like when he's sitting there and he talks about it being a trap because Bodie Rook being there with the, the plans and Galen's message. And then all of a sudden Jin shows up. He's like, this is just too coincidental. This is a trap. And then he's like doing the math in his head. He's like, did they send you to kill me? And like, I just love the way he delivered it. But I think the issue, and this gets back to the nitpicking of saw is when we see him in, in rebels, it didn't feel like he lined up so much. Like, Rebels is so close to Rogue One that it's like, he hasn't really been poisoned enough that his voice has changed. The eye color's still there. Like, I, I'm having a hard time putting that together because we know that he got close to finding the Death Star, and that's why the Genosians moved the Death Star from Genosis. Not Genosians, but uh, the Empire moved the Death Star from Genosis. And then they wiped out the Genosians, and then four years later, they show up in Rebels. It's like, what? what? Uh, what like the timing there is off for me I, something doesn't make sense and i don't understand why they would have saw Guerrero get really close to finding the death star and then have him wait four years to show up on genosis like if he was really close you would think that the episode of rebels like they were sneaking the death star off the back of the shadow of the planet or something not it's been dead and genosis has, have been all poisoned for four years and everything like that made no sense whatsoever i got the aspect of bringing him into rebels to tie it together but I feel like they kind of dropped the ball when they did it. And it has to come down to the question of when he gets the information that he has that leads him there, right? I mean, it's not necessarily that as soon as it happens, he hears about it. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, you think historically, there's plenty of things that we are learning still about certain aspects of, say, World War II or World War One or mm. the 1800s. And it's only stuff that we're able to even know to look for because maybe some new document has been found and in the document there's a reference to something like holy crap we need to go dig here or holy crap we need to go look here and wow look at what we've just learned so i could see it being something where you know he went as soon as he you know had the information like but a I mean, curse it's not of like oak geonosis. island kind of i mean but i mean you don't have a lot of traffic necessarily in and out of geonosis it's not like people would be like wow 
Where'd everybody go constantly? I mean, it may be a while before somebody really realizes what has happened, and then that information has to somehow circulate to eventually get to Saw. So I think that that kind of works well enough. And I wonder if part of that, what, what led him there, remember the first time they went to Geonosis in Rebels was when uh, Zeb and Callus wind up stuck on the moon, mm-hmm. on Baron. And that's when they notice, wait, there's all this wreckage and stuff in orbit, and there's no life readings down on the planet. What the hell is going on? Mm-hmm. I wonder if at that time, maybe Saw's group was still a little closer entrenched with the Rebellion, because they talk about how, well, his group, because of how extreme they were, you know, they kind of were gone since the beginning, but the way the visual guide talks about it, you know, the beginning of the official Rebel Alliance hasn't even really happened yet in Rebels still. Yeah. That's still you know, kind of on the way as my mom was kind of entering the picture and everything. So I could certainly see them having that information coming back as a report. And eventually that information makes its way to saw as he's investigating things. Maybe something's pointing him to Geonosis. Then he sees that report and is like, holy crap. And feels like he needs to go investigate. It's I, again, I think that's another, it's a thing that's, that sometimes is causing questions, but I don't see where the issue comes from. It's an easy retcon. Like, like you could say he found the planet, like he found out about Genosis, but he didn't know the name of the planet and the empire found out, well, he knows about Genosis, but if he just finds out the, where it's at, then we're doomed. We got to move now. He's on, he's already onto us. And it took him four years to find out the planet name. Right. And they did move, because of him, I think, if I remember correctly, out of the visual guide. That, yeah. That they knew that somebody had found out. Yeah, and that that's where that came up. That was where that four years came from, because then it was talking about how the Empire then plant, uh, poisoned the planet, and four years later, I'm like, wow, four years? Like, dang, Saw. <laughs> Took you long enough. You mentioned Forrest Whitaker. I've seen Forrest Whitaker in quite a few things. I think um, gosh, I think the first thing I ever saw him in was in... Uh, in Good Morning Vietnam, and I remember his character in Good Morning Vietnam mainly because he's the guy that uses a lo- that he says a line that I wind up using a lot even today, which was uh, he says that you suck the sweat off a dead man's balls. I don't know what that means, sir, but it sounds pretty negative to me. And, and he's then seeing him in stuff like uh, I think it was Street Kings. I think was the film with. Uh, with Keanu Reeves, um, he's always been a very strong actor. I've always really liked Forrest Whitaker and almost everything that he's portrayed. And it actually was the opposite for me with Saw. I had to get used to him speaking the way that Saw speaks in this because it's not traditional Forrest Whitaker. And I'm like, what? Did, did he bore gullet himself a few times for the heck of it? What's going on with Saw? But again, the novelization helps add a little bit to this because in essence, it's sort of because of how broken down he is. It's showing the weakness, and yet he still has a strength to keep going, but a weakness physically, and how much this fight has cost him. And then when Jin shows up and is ready to confront him, you know, you would think that she's ready to confront him, someone who's going to fire back on all cylinders. She's going to yell at him. He's going to yell back, and that's what this is going to be because that's who they are. Except she shows up, and by then he's already this kind of broken man. And in a sense, that sort of takes some of the wind out of Jin's sails for her anger towards him because she's seeing this guy who raised her not as this strong individual anymore, but as someone who's not willing to fight back. You know, there's there's plenty of moments where essentially in the novelization, it's like she's thinking, you know, fight, damn you. You know, say something, do something, because that's what I expect, and that's not who you've become. So it took me a while to get used to Forrest Whitaker's portrayal here, but I think it wound up working in the long run. And the fact that he was willing to be the voice of Saw for Rebels is, is awesome. I love the fact that, you know, him, James Earl Jones, there's all these people who are being convinced, you know what, there's there's a greater legacy to your performance that means something to people. So, yes, I know it's quote-unquote just a cartoon, but it's Star Wars and it's a character you brought to life 
maybe you should consider actually coming back and doing it, even if it's just cartoon voice work, just in quotes. Um, and I've been very impressed by that. I did also like when Saw, right before he decides he's not going to come, he's like, I'll run no more. And I like, to me, it immediately made me think of Chief Joseph and that I'll, I'll run no more forever. Uh, I, I just, I, I thought that was cool. I don't know if that was the intended you know, reference they were hoping people would make, but that was definitely what I picked up on. Uh, one last little nitpick that I think uh, me and Barrett were picking up on when we were doing the Padawan perspective talking about it is that this film does create an air in A New Hope. Uh, and it's funny because this whole film is talked about as it is the opening crawl for A New Hope, and yet it now creates an air in the opening crawl. Pursued by the Emperor's sinister agents, Princess Leia races home aboard her starship, custodian the stolen plans that could save her people and restore freedom to the galaxy. Uh, she's not racing home. She's racing to Tatooine, not Alderaan. So, Except she's on her way to Alderaan to bring that information, but on the way she's supposed to pick up Obi-Wan. Yep, traveling That's by not route of Tatooine. <laughs> the issue. I mean, so they, you know, I, if I say that I'm going to work and it turns out that I have a little bit of time to spare and I, before I go in for my meeting, I swing by Publix and grab me a cherry Coke before going in, that doesn't mean you weren't actually going to work. You were going to Publix. <laughs> no, I was going to work. I just had something I needed to stop off on first. Yeah. Yeah, again... An issue without, I mean, without substance for me. I, I think I'm good. I, I think I'm more concerned about, holy crap, this was their first victory. So I guess it's the first victory of the Alliance. Because surely there have been smaller victories we've seen with others. But this was the first big sort of coordinated major military action for the Alliance itself, as opposed to the individual cells. Because that always struck me as kind of an odd thing with Rebels giving us victories from time to time, even if they're minor. And that saying their first victory, but you, we got to put it within the context of what kind of victory are we talking about? Yep. No, and I think that for me, that's the, the moral of this is every little nitpick is literally that little and nitpicking. Uh, I walked away from this film and I said, the only thing it was missing was the opening crawl. And I, you know, I really, I stand by that. I mean, even though some characters may have gotten more screen time, uh, I think that you can compensate by that by watching the film more times. You know, the more times I watched it, the more I got out of each character by the time they came to their conclusion point. Um, so, you know, maybe there's something there, but generally overall, I really enjoyed this one. Uh, I've said it before. I, this is now my favorite star Wars film. This has bumped the force awakens off to the side. I don't necessarily know if episode eight will be able to do the same thing. And I, I have very big doubts that the Han solo film will do similar. Um, I, I worry that my favorite film is going to be whatever came out this year. Uh, so I'm trying to stay as, as objective and honest and open about it. But, but again, this one, it catered to so many things that I had wanted to see that I hoped for to see in this film. Uh, so, so that delivering it, it, it just made this like cheesecake for me. And, and I love cheesecake. I'm, I'm right up there with, uh, with some people that just enjoy cheesecake. You know, some people just like cheesecake more than pie. I'm one of those guys. And this film was definitely my cheesecake. Yeah, this is definitely at this point, I would say it's my favorite of the star Wars films. I think it's because of the different themes that are involved. It's because of the different tone, and I've always loved sort of the ethical questions and, and quandaries and the psychological aspects behind characters. And this film sort of brings all those things while giving us a story that really sort of fits into the mindset and the approach of sort of that connective tissue that so many stories I've enjoyed for Star Wars that have helped define Star Wars for me over the years have been. So, yeah, for me, this is number one. I said the same thing, though, for different reasons about 
uh, The Force Awakens. And I, I will, you know, put in the caveat, it may be, you know, just whatever just got my attention this year will stand out for a while as the best, because there was a time when I thought Attack of the Clones was the one that was the best in my first episode of Chrono Radio back in 2002, and looking back on it now, I would put that as one of my bottom two out of all the films. So, it's all the question of sort of relative perception and whatnot, but I think this one will be able to stand there for a while. I am very curious whether or not Episode Eight would be able to take that crown away, and whether it can take the crown away, essentially, for The Force Awakens as far as the numbered films go, because... We're expecting sort of a very different feel to that one that may be a little bit more in line with Rogue One being sort of a darker film. So very curious about that. But I'm right there with you. I do not expect the Han Solo film to manage to beat this or The Force Awakens because there's just, at this point, I'm kind of like, why are you making this movie? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if, if it's not, if you're not able to pull like a young Han Solo thing with Harrison Ford de-aged or something, okay. But are these the right people to cast? How well are they going to portray them? We haven't seen any indication of that yet. And what kind of story are you going to tell? Is it going to feel like it mattered like this one did as a Star Wars story, an anthology film, and yet still fit? Or is this really going to feel like the oddball? Are we going to be looking back and saying, wow, Rebels and Clone Wars felt like they fit the saga better than this film did? Mm -hmm. I have no doubt it's going to be able to probably come in and surpass maybe... The Phantom Menace, maybe Attack of the Clones for me. Some of the films that I find are weaker, but that's just because I feel like the storytelling and the style lately has been a little tighter in the filmmaking than what Lucas did with McCollum not being willing to tell him no back when making the first couple of prequels. So I I, I don't think that the Han Solo film is going to wind up being at the bottom of the list for me, but I don't see it being anywhere near the top or having the opportunity to do it because the concept so far doesn't sound like something I'm going to latch on to quite as much. But we will see, surely, at the end of this year for eight and the end of next year for Han Solo. Yeah, and, and we should have uh, some more titles on the horizon, I would think. I mean, we've we've known Han Solo's coming for a while, but we still don't know if we're getting a Yoda or a Boba Fett or a something else. <laughs> <laughs> Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, second airborne division of podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Stitcher and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. We can always use more iTunes reviews. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It is literally the best way to interact with us. It is our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or Legends questions or ponders, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our sponsors, Audible. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Star Wars Report, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors, they have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars Expanded Universe or the canon one or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months, that's one year, with no questions asked. 
So, in this digital age, if you're thinking of making that switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that the next standalone film will finally be that romantic male-on-male adventure that so many fans have apparently been clamoring for. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. <laughs> and sometimes we just ponder way, way too deeply. Yeah, like, was... But that's our job. Was Chirrut the pitcher or the catcher? I still... I... Ah! <laughs> ah! All right. <laughs>